Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them, some of them asking, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as he needs, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. It's uh, probably no surprise to anybody that I love history, and I found out all kinds of fascinating things my entire life about my church. 
and uh, I'd just like to share with you. Uh, the first church building, which it was thought up in uh, 1800, due to Benjamin Freeman's tavern right around the corner where they uh, tore it down to make the fire station. You probably know where the fire station is. And his barn was right across the street. So uh, they decided that they needed a meeting house because going all the way to Sturbridge was getting real old fast. So the first one was actually really tiny. And it was both us and our brothers and sisters over at the Elm Street Congregationalist Church that were together. Well, uh, as the population grew, the church was uh, not big enough. So the Congregationalists moved to Elm Street, and our church stayed right here. Well, finally, our church family grew so big that the little one didn't work anymore, so they picked it up, and they rolled it on rollers right next door, and it turned into a little store, dry goods store. And then they built the one that was here before this one. And if you, how many people have been to Old Sturbridge Village? And you've seen the church? Ours was identical, built one year apart by the same carpenter. And it was white, and it looked just like that one. Unfortunately, in the eight, great fire of 1863, it burned to the ground. Oh, it was awful. But anyways. No, but I, I read all the... <laughs> I read all the accounts, though, and, and I like that white one in Old Sturbridge Village. Not that I don't love this one, but I thought it was funny. You know, the last one burned down, so what we do, we made a new one and made it out of brick. It's like we, we got smarter. So uh, that happened in 1863. They started building this one in 1865. I told that to a friend of mine. He looked confused and lost. He said, two years later, what were they waiting for? I said, well, all the men in my church were gone. He said, where'd they go? I said, they were in the Civil War. When they came back, they started building the church. And the following year, in 1866, was the first year that the doors were open. The fellow that built this one, or who was the head architect, if you would, was a newly immigrated American. And he was from Scandinavia. And what did he do before he came here and started doing carpentry? He was a shipbuilder. And I used to look at the frame on the ceiling all the time and think, I never saw a frame like that. Well, you've got to understand, he, he was used to building ships. So what did he do? He flipped it upside down. So it's like the bottom hull with the carbuncles of a ship. And that's why we have such an unusual ceiling is because he was a shipwright before he ever became a carpenter. And did I make it in three minutes? Every week, Sue sends me a list of hymns to select from for before and after the sermon. And this week I said, I want to sing that one because I really like the big words in it. And she said, you're such a wordaholic. <laughs> and <laughs> I, truer words have probably never been spoken. Um, I, I try to like keep my words a little bit simpler, but it's hard for me because I really, really love the big words. It's kind of like, a treat. Anyway, so we'll, we'll try. Let's pray. Maybe that'll help. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that you are with us and you are the word of life. We pray that you will express yourself 
through these words today and into our ears and our hearts and our minds so we can receive what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is the last, for this year at least, of the questions from the congregation. <laughs> um, we've gone through six weeks of questions. This is the sixth week. And the question is, can we use secular media in church? You might have noticed that I kind of reword the questions that people have asked me. This one wasn't even directly asked me for this series. But every once in a while, and if you think I'm talking about you, there's more than one person who's done this, so it might be you, but it might be some other people too. Um, every once in a while, someone will come up to me and say, and express some concern that sometimes, for example, Barb, who usually does the message in a basket, or I will bring in books or stories or references to movies or things that are not Christian, right? Like Dr. Seuss or Harry Potter or Marvel or one time I referred to Squid Game in here. That is definitely not Christian. Um, is that okay? Unqualified, yes? Why? It's part of the world. Get a point across. We're part of the world. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad that most of you see it that way. Um, I think we're going to explore a little bit more of why, because you're right. We are in the world, we interact with these things, and we have, um, and sometimes they can tell us things, even about our faith, even if they don't come from the place of the same faith that we have. Um, however, there are Christians, maybe in this congregation, but definitely I know in this area, and I've known in the past, Christians who feel like we need to so totally separate ourselves from the world. We need to um, only support Christian businesses and only take in Christian media, and that's all um, because we don't want to be contaminated. We don't want to have our faith undermined. We don't want to lose our faith, so we're going to just keep it here. I think there's another version of this question, which might be, isn't the Bible enough? Okay, so if I pose it that way, how do you answer? <laughs> okay. 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 I'm going to I'm going to restate what you just said. Um, the Bible should be enough, but sometimes people have trouble understanding what it says in there and so we need something to help. That's that's one thing we could say. What's that? Yeah. See how the Bible applies to modern times. You can make some you can draw some analogies. Okay, we're gonna get into all this, um, but yes, thank you. Okay, change is good. 
Jesus taught in parables, which were stories that related to everyday life. Okay, good. This is great job, you guys. You're, you're thinking and critically reasoning. I like this. Okay, so this actually takes us all the way back to the first question that we had in this series, which was, what is the Bible, essentially? Um, and so I want to remind us what we said about the Bible briefly in that talk. Um, the Bible is the primary way that God communicates with us in writing. Jesus is the full expression of God. The Bible actually shows us something about Jesus, but it's a little harder <laughs> sometimes to get at. But it is the primary way in writing that God has chosen to communicate with us. There isn't any other media. There's no other book. There's no movie. There's no play. There's no social media. There's no, no inspirational speaker. There's nobody else. Not even There is not even a Christian pastor that can give you as much of what God is as the Bible. It is, there's a term that sometimes people use about the Bible, and they say it is authoritative for faith and practice. The buck stops there. If you're trying to figure out how to live your life, go to the Bible. It helps us know how to engage the world as citizens of a different kingdom than the world. However, if we don't have the Holy Spirit helping us understand the Bible while we're reading it, it is, at best, just another book, and at worst, a tool of abuse. Because there are, like Mark said and like Rand implied, there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand at first glance. And you can be really smart and you might be able to get a meaning out of it, but if the Holy Spirit isn't helping you with that meaning, you're probably not going to get it right. And let me just say real quick, also our faith and our understanding of God is a process, and so I understand things, I've been reading the Bible since I was a little kid, and I understand things in the Bible, and so, some things in the Bible differently now than I did when I was a little kid. That's fine. That's the process of the Holy Spirit as I grow up, and doesn't matter when you start reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit can do that for you too. You're not going to, you don't get this automatic download where you suddenly understand absolutely everything. It's like your system manager or something like that. You, it's, it's a process. Um, so don't beat yourself up if you feel like you don't understand it, you're trying to l read it with the Holy Spirit and you don't get it, or, um, or you used to think this thing and you, now you think this thing, and was that the Holy Spirit? That's a different thing. Um, if you're just reading the Bible for information only and because you have an agenda, you can basically make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Really. So, without the Holy Spirit to help us understand it, it is just another book. With the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Bible, the Spirit and the words combined will, over time, help to rewire our brains rewire our thinking, and retrain our behavior so we look more and more like Jesus. This is the point of church, by the way. Like, none of us have the same amount of expressing Jesus or in the same areas, but the point of going to church 
is to allow God to change us to look more like Jesus. And we're all going to look like Jesus differently, because we're different. But if that's not why we're here, that's, there's not really a whole lot of point. Everything is about becoming more like Christ. And, so, and the Bible, with the Holy Spirit, helps in that process. And as our perspectives get changed, as our brains get rewired by this, and as we start behaving differently, as we get retrained by the Spirit and the Word, the Holy Spirit will help us to see where God's truth is, not just in the Bible, which is from God, but in other media too. Because, guess what? The world is God. God is very gracious and allows us to take control where we feel like we need to take control. But the world is still God. And God doesn't leave any part of the world without little glimpses of himself and his truth, which, with the Holy Spirit, we can find. I call this hide-and-seek with Jesus. I've been doing it for a while now. <laughs> um, when I, a lot of times when I watch TV with Paul at night, I'm also doing stuff on my phone, so I'm not really paying attention. But if I sit down and watch a movie and pay attention to it, I can usually find something in there that reminds me of Jesus. Whether because it's good and true and Christ-like, or because it's totally the opposite of that, and I'm like, wow, thank God for Jesus. Like, that's horrible. But either way, I'm encountering Jesus in something that's not Christian or intended to be Christian. So, the passage that Mark read for us today from Acts 17 is a little picture of the Apostle Paul playing hide-and-seek with Jesus. He is, in this story, he is in Athens. He's on a, he takes three missionary journeys in his life that we see in the Bible, and this is one of them. Um, and he's, in, he's been in a few other Greek cities, and now he's in Athens. Does anybody remember anything about Athens from history? Okay, a lot of gods. Yes, really smart. Athens was the Boston of the first century. <laughs> the Boston. You know, people are really proud of their brains in Boston. <laughs> um, so Athens was actually named after a Greek goddess, Athena, and she was the goddess of wisdom. And the people in Athens were really proud of their intellects. They were proud of their education. They were well-read. They were philosophers. They had philosopher and poet trading cards. Just kidding. Not really. But uh, they were also, in their way, very politically correct. They had gods to cover all the bases. All of them. Verse 21 says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Uh, Boston? <laughs> okay. What do we know about Paul before he met Jesus? Okay, he wasn't that nice of a guy. He was passionate, well-educated, thorough. thorough. He killed Christians. Yes, he was thorough. 
tell me a little bit more about his education. to eliminate her prep. Yes, okay, so he was a Pharisee. He was actually one of the Pharisees. He had a ton of schooling. He knew his scripture. He knew his Hebrew culture. He knew what the law said, the biblical law, but he also was a Roman citizen, and apparently, because of what we see in the story, he was also pretty well educated in Roman culture and Greek culture, which was the main secular culture of the time. It wasn't really secular. They were super religious. They had a lot of gods, but the non-monotheistic culture. So the way he responds to the Athenians shows that he knew not just about their culture, but he understood it a little bit. He understood the context. He understood where it was coming from. I don't know if this was it, so basically, he knew their media. I don't know if this was unusual for Pharisees, if Paul was this kind of outlier, or if a lot of Pharisees knew a lot about the Roman culture, too. I kind of doubt it. But anyway, he was, he was pretty well-rounded as far as uh, intellectual things. So he go, in verse 16, it says he's in Athens, and he's walking around the city, and he is greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So... Why is he distressed? Okay, now he's a Christian. He's not trying to kill people anymore. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. And the idols would imply that they're lost, is what you're saying. Okay. Um, What does he do about his distress? Okay, he talks with people. It says he reasoned in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and eventually in the Areopagus. So he goes out and he goes into the synagogue, which is where all the Jewish background, maybe Christians are, but also Jewish people are. And so he reasons with them from from the scripture, most likely. And then he goes into the marketplace. That's where the everyday people are, normal Athenians who are probably also kind of intellectual, but that's just a more everyday kind of place, maybe social media. And then eventually he goes to the Areopagus. This is like him getting a TED talk or something. He like gets to go and talk to all these people and get some, he gets a platform. And he is basically meeting three groups of people where they are using what he knows about each group's culture and society. Little note about reasoning to evangelize. So he's evangelizing, we'll use that word. He's trying to tell people about Jesus and the good news of Jesus and how that's to free us from our sins. Um, And he is, in this case, he's using reason. And a lot of people try to still use reason when they're evangelizing today. This worked for some people. This worked for the Athenians. 
notice this doesn't this approach doesn't always work for everybody. So apologetics is a thing. It's a it's a discipline of kind of using your reason and being able to say almost you can't prove that God does or doesn't exist, but almost prove that God exists. And that is really compelling for some people. And it was more compelling. I age myself and everybody here by saying this in the 1900s. Um, <laughs> but but that approach to evangelism, evangelism doesn't work so great in our culture today. Mostly today, people want to know if your belief system is going to make you better, not if you can prove it. They want to know that your life looks better than their, like, better as in you are kinder, you are more loving, you, um, you are helping people. They want to know that that's the kind of difference that your beliefs make. If you believe it, it's coming out in a good way in the world. For the Athenians, it sounds like they were like more Americans a few decades ago, um, and they just wanted to be able to reason it out. So that's what Paul does. But he reasons by finding the pain point in their society. The pain point in their society is he sees, he sees all these statues of all these idols all the pl over the place, and then he sees one that says, to an unknown god. The Athenians are insecure. They're so proud of their knowledge, but even in that, even though they're so smart and they are so religious, they still have this insecurity that they haven't covered all their bases. There's got to be, we have all these gods, but just in case we miss one, let's put this statue of nothing here. So Paul points that out. He notices it, and he's like, oh, this is the place where this society is in, is in pain or is struggling or they're wrestling with this. So I'm going to focus on this to help them see how Jesus can fill this need, how Jesus can heal this pain. So he reassures them. He points this out to them. He says, I noticed that you have this statue to an unknown God. And then he reassures them that he can actually introduce them to that God they don't know. And he quotes and references their own media to help them understand the God of the Bible. And he is able to do this because he's familiar with it. The first medium he uses is the statue that, of nothing that says to an unknown God, and then he quotes a poet. What he doesn't do is he doesn't ask them to come on board where he is right away. He goes to where they are. He goes to their gathering place, but he also goes where in themselves they fear, feel most comfortable, their intellect. So he doesn't start by saying, well, the Bible says, because they don't know the Bible. They don't care about the Bible. That has no, they have no sense of its authority over their lives. They just don't care. So there's no point in going there. They're going to shut him off. He would have never made it to the Areopagus if he started with that. He goes to where they are, which is their brains. Here's another note. Jesus didn't preach about the kingdom of God this way because Jesus' context was different. So Paul is talking to people who are educated and really into that. 
Jesus was talking to farmers and day laborers, and so in his parables, like Ron mentioned, he uses farming and day laboring analogies and stories about masters and servants and bosses and um, stuff like that, which is more appropriate to the people that Jesus was talking to. That wouldn't work for these Athenians. That's not their world. So Jesus and Paul kind of do the same thing, just in a different way with the two different groups that they're choosing. So Paul doesn't ask them to come where he is. He goes where they are, just like Jesus does for us. Paul also doesn't trash their idols or their beliefs, even though he's distressed by them. He goes into Athens, and he's just like, oh, my word, this is awful. He's, he is distressed, but he doesn't tell them that. He doesn't say, you guys, this stuff is fake. Just throw it away. Get rid of it. He doesn't trash them. Verses 22 to 23 say, says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He doesn't say, You guys are worshiping a whole bunch of gods that aren't gods, and also this, this one, you're worshiping this thing you don't even know. Duh. I'm going to tell you what it is. No, he, he, he affirms them. I see that you're religious. I see that you have spiritual sensitivity. I see that this is of concern to you. And I notice that you might be a little concerned because you don't know who this God is. Well, I'm gonna, I know. I know who it is. I'm going to show you. So, And he doesn't start with Scripture, like we already said. He talks about the God of Scripture. He talks about the good news of Scripture. But he doesn't say, Scripture says. He says, this is what happened. And here is a poet that you know, that you consider to be truthful. And this is something that they said that backs up what I'm saying right now. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is kind of like what you said this morning, Ray. We're brothers and sisters because we're children of God. Some people might, some Christians might quibble with that a little bit. We might say, well, we're really only children of God when we've been saved through Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which God made all of us and we're all in his image. And so from that basis, we are all children of God. Paul doesn't quibble with that. He says, okay, here's a little piece of truth in their poet's writings, and so I'm going to quote that. So they listen. So, before you think I'm saying, it's okay, we can just engage any kind of media we want, and everything is going to be fine, I do want to acknowledge there is a legitimate danger when we engage media of any kind that doesn't come directly from God. However, that's all the media, except for the Bible. <laughs> um, but I will say, that here's the danger. Sometimes we may not lose our faith, but we might absorb things that are, to use a term we used a lot last year, empire-ish, and think that they're Christian. By accident. This happened right at the beginning of the church. Greek thinking 
like the kind of thinking that was in Athens at this time, began to take over Christian thought in the early centuries of the church. And so it shoved out a more Hebrew way of thinking, and we still see the consequences of this today. We have a lot of times in Christian churches, there's what's called dualism. We've talked about this before here, but it was years ago, um, where everything is black and white. This is good and this is bad, and usually it's the spirit is good and the flesh is bad, and everything that has to do with the spirit is great, and everything that has to do with the flesh is bad. That's not biblical. But you can read the Bible with that in your mind and make the Bible say that. It's not really what the Bible's saying, but you can make it, you can think that it's saying that if that's your starting point. And that's one of the things that got kind of mixed in to Christianity. The Hebrew way of thinking is a lot more fluid. It's more like everything is originally good because God made it, and we in our sin have marred it. And so now it's not like I'm saying this one thing is bad. I'm saying this is a way in which this thing can become an idol. I can focus on this thing to the exclusion of God, or for example. Something else that can creep in, this started when uh, the Emperor Constantine became, and we don't, nobody's really sure if this was a real conversion or a political conversion, but the Emperor Constantine decided to become a Christian, and suddenly Christianity became the religion of the empire. This is like empire and kingdom merging Guess what? When that happens, empire always takes over. So nationalism in connected with Christianity is a problem. Racism has gotten connected with Christianity. Patriarchy has gotten connected with Christianity. All of this is because people have read these parts of culture, of unredeemed culture, into scripture. It's possible to do that, but these ideas don't come from scripture. They come from outside of scripture and people that have been in that culture and that have been absorbing that culture's media and that have been living a lot on those terms, they bring those things into scripture and then it gets passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down as scripture. But the word, Jesus, Jesus is the real word of God, through the Bible, is not supposed to defend all of these things that keep people suppressed and bowed down and tied up and, and in, enslaved. It is here to help us redefine, reinterpret the world. The world is not supposed to reinterpret Scripture. Scripture is supposed to reinterpret the world through us. So, we have to be vigilant as we are interacting with the world, because when we do, when we bring in secular media, or even when we're just watching it ourselves, or when we're interacting with other people in the world, we have to be aware what of this is really kingdom, and what of this is me finding, I'm finding Jesus even in this unredeemed place, like Paul did in Athens. But here's the other thing to remember and to um, find some hope in. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's from God. That's a quote from a philosophy professor that I had once. And by the way, 
I got that's the only class I got a D in. So, <laughs> but I got that. But I got that sentence, and it's true. If it, something is true, it's from God. Even if it's not, some it it usually will show up somewhere in the Bible. But even if you found it somewhere else, so if I find something true in a book I'm reading or a movie I'm watching. It doesn't mean the whole thing is from God. It doesn't even mean the whole thing is that good. But the little kernel of truth that's in there, that's still from God. It doesn't mean that we need to engage all of the media. It's not a responsibility. Some of it will be harmful for us, or sometimes it might be harmful for someone else. This is kind of like alcohol. Some people can drink alcohol, and it's fine. They can, be, they can do so in moderation. Other people, it's not good. And so you have to know what your limits are, and you have to be helping other people be aware of your limits so you can have appropriate boundaries. These are true. And if I ever say, if I ever bring in a reference from something secular here and you have a problem with it, it does something to your faith. Not you just don't like it, but like it, you find that it's harmful to you, then please talk to me about it because I don't ever want to put a stumbling block there. However, um, and I also want to say, referring to secular media or ideas is not the same thing as recommending. So for example, I did reference Squid Game here one time. I don't recommend that show. I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, not everything should be engaged by everybody, and there are things that I could not engage in my youth that I can, and it's okay now, and there are other things that I used to engage in my youth that I will not touch now. This is about listening to the Spirit for our limits. Also, this doesn't mean that we have to refer to secular media in church, but we are free to. Paul used it to evangelize. So here's the question. Paul used it to evangelize people who weren't Christians yet, who didn't read the Bible, fine. Okay, but Pastor Jen and Barb use it in church where most of us do believe in the truth of the Bible, right? So should we just stick to the Bible? <laughs> okay. I do want to point this out. Paul is not the only person in the Bible who used non-biblical writings and stories to make true points about God, about God's people, and about God's kingdom. I'm going to, there are two examples, but one of them will take too much explaining. But Ezekiel does this. But Jesus also does this. I didn't even realize, but my husband Paul, when he preached here on the 4th of July, found out that when Jesus references Lazarus in his parable about the rich man and Lazarus, he's actually calling back to a whole bunch of stories that the Hebrew people had, but they weren't from the Bible, these stories. They were just legends that the people had been passing down and passing down. It was part of their cultural understanding. They're just stories, right? Not really secular. Again, secular means doesn't have anything to do with God. That doesn't apply in the Hebrew culture. But, but anyway, these were not biblical stories. Jesus referenced it to Jewish people who believed in God. So, if Jesus can use, quote-unquote, secular media, I feel like 
You can probably do that too. God intends for us to bring his loving order into the chaos of the world. I've said this before. I'm going to say it over and over and over again. Jesus referenced regular, everyday, non-religious life to make points in his parables. Nowadays, as some of you said, TV, streaming services, news outlets, books, social media are people's regular, everyday, non-religious life. Right? A whole lot of us, that is a giant part of our day. So, we can't and with Jesus as our model, we shouldn't completely shut the world out. Jesus didn't shut the world out. He became one of us, and he engaged it, but he redefined it. He didn't let it define him. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. He knew if he looked hard enough, he would find Jesus literally ev anywhere and everywhere he went, whether the person or people who created the, the media intended for Jesus to be there or not. When we do encounter secular media, we can let the spirit who is in us and who is transforming us transform the way we see and interact with the world around us instead of the other way around. I'm going to say this one more time. The Bible is from God differently than any other media. No other book, show, inspirational speaker, Christian writer, Christian pastor can say anything that's on the same level as the Bible itself. But the Bible says to test the spirits. And that means there's going to be places where we get to test the spirits. Right? It's not always going to be the Holy Spirit, but it might not be a bad spirit, or the Holy Spirit might still be able to show us something there. So that means in the other things that we interact with, in media, in, in our conversations with people. Even the Bible, coming directly from God, cannot contain God. God is bigger than it. The Bible tells us more about God than anything else, but God is still bigger. God wants everybody, everywhere, to encounter him wherever they are, and he sneaks whispers of himself and glimpses of himself into all of creation and also into the way people respond to creation so he can be found by them. Testing the spirits everywhere is really only possible, though, when you have been spending time not just in the Bible by itself, but with God in the Bible. So we're all the way back to the beginning of this series. When you read the Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand it in the way that God meant it. Even if it doesn't all happen at once, just every time you read it, just ask. Allow the Holy Spirit to change your thoughts and attitudes and actions to be like Jesus. That's what we're here for. And then, when that happens, as that happens, as Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 2, you won't be conformed to the world because you will see it for what it is. You will be able to encounter the people and the media, and you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You will find, through the Holy Spirit, where Jesus is hiding in all these other places, and either be able to introduce people to him, 
as you see him there, or get to know him better yourselves as he gives you knowledge the way he intended, not the way the serpent in the garden intended, but the way God intended all along. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please fill our hearts and our minds and our lives. We know that you want to make us more like Jesus. Please help us to understand the things that you wanted us to from this talk today and forget about any of the stuff that didn't make any sense. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will equip all of us more and more every day to engage your word and then the world through your spirit of Jesus. In his name, amen.